0: As we take a moment to pray this morning, I'd like to read a few words written by David. We're studying, of course, the early uh, days of David's having been anointed king, but not yet being coronated king, and his being chased around by King Saul. And in those difficult times, David wrote many psalms. Let me read some words that David wrote from the 69th Psalm. David said, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk deep in mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary from my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. And may those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. O Father, we live in an ever-darkening world, A world in which evil seems to be rampant all across this planet, and yet we know, Father, this is Your world, and one day will be the day of reckoning. And Father, You are working to call out Your people even this day, this hour. And around the world where Your Word is proclaimed, men and women are coming into the kingdom of God. They are becoming a part of the body of Christ. We're grateful that we as a small group can gather as part of that body and worship together and study your word and I pray that your Holy Spirit will instruct our minds and hearts. And Father, as we so often note from the book of James, let us not be hearers of the word only, but doers. Help us to recognize that the God who saved David is the God who saves us. That the God who lifted David out of the miry clay is the God who lifts us out of the miry clay. Father, may we draw our strength from you each and every hour and each and every day. I pray your blessing on these men and women here in this room this morning. You know the needs of each one. Meet those needs, I pray. And help open our eyes to what it is you want us to learn from the events and and the problems, the trials, as well as the good times that you bring into our lives, that we might grow in your ways and serve you effectively. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at the events in the life of David before he became king of Israel, as he is facing the trials and tribulations related to the the king of Israel at that time, whose name was Saul. We're talking about events which occurred in the 11th century before Christ. So we're talking about events which occurred 35, well, about 3,000, 3,100 years ago. But I think the most important thing for us to note in all of this is we're not studying ancient history. We're studying lives that are relevant to us. Because the attitude that Saul displayed and the attitude that David displayed are attitudes common to us today. It's still the same clash that's going on, that has gone on throughout history. Saul's inspired in, in what he's doing by, by the whisperings of the evil one. And, and I think that it's become clear from our study of Scripture that Satan is always at work. He, he, he never <coughs> tires. He's always trying to draw people away from God to prevent them from knowing God in the first place if he can. And Saul, of course, had another problem going, and that was his own paranoia. And so he's been pursuing David for several years because he views David as a threat to his throne, which, of course, David is because God has already said to Saul, you're going to lose your throne when you die. And uh, David's going to take over. And David, of course, is not related to Saul. And Saul wanted his own son to take the throne when he died, which, of course, is reasonable. And fortunately, as we have studied, Jonathan, the son of Saul, was a godly man and who loved David. And was glad to have David become king instead of himself. and, And was first to stand alongside him. But his father, Saul, was totally paranoid. David, of course, kept eluding Saul. But Saul was relentless in his pursuit because he wanted to destroy this man. If if he had any goal in his life, his goal was to destroy David. And in that he epitomizes the, the world condition today which is out to destroy the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. The world would love to destroy the church because the church by its presence is a conscience and constantly mirrors the fact that evil in the world is destroying our civilization. The pursuit of David came to a temporary halt uh, as, we study in, uh, as we see in this particular chapter. This scenario in the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel demonstrates the difference between the man of God and the man of the world. And I think that's what we have to see when we, when we compare David and Saul. We're looking at the man of God in comparison to the man of this world the man who might be honored by the world today, but a man who represents everything that is opposite from God. Between a man of principle, as David was, and an unprincipled man, as Saul was, between a wise man and a fool. Saul has defeated the Philistines, the enemies that lived next to uh, Israel. Philistines lived along the coast here, and this inside the red line is Saul's kingdom. And he, he was chasing David down here and then had to go back and fight the Philistines. We're not told exactly where, but certainly somewhere over in here. And he defeated the Philistines. And then he came back in his, uh, in his pursuit of Saul. And he is attempting to trap David here at En Gedi. En Gedi is right on the west coast of the Dead Sea. This is the Dead Sea right here. En Gedi is about 1,200 feet below sea level. It's an oasis but Saul is coming in from the opposite side here. He's coming in from Bethlehem along a, a road that went in through the This is very wild and rugged land in here. And he's coming in this way to Engedi. And so he's to the west of the oasis of Engedi. Now again I mentioned to you last time and if you've ever been to Israel, you've been to the oasis at Engedi. It's a beautiful place. Um, there's a waterfall that leaps off the cliff into a beautiful pond and and there are palm trees, uh, date palms, and uh, vineyards, and uh, crops are raised because it kind of, the, the uh, canyon uh, eventually widens out to the, uh, to the shore of the Dead Sea. And there's a stream that flows through there. And it's been inhabited, that region's been inhabited for at least 4,000 years. But the events we're reading about in the 24th chapter occur to the west of the oasis, up in the upper part of the ravine in, in very wild and rugged land, which we read last time. The scripture says was only a land for wild goats. Saul with his 3,000 men in pursuit of David, somebody had told, somebody had snitched and said, hey, David is, I saw David over there at En Gedi. So Saul's coming with his men to try to capture David. And as he's coming into the uh, ravine there, he notices a cliff in the side, uh, I mean a a cave in the side of the cliff. And he had a particular need at that time to relieve himself. And so he went into the cave uh, to do so in private. And unbeknownst to him, David and many of his men were actually in that very cave. This is not an accident. This is something, again, that God has allowed for God's sovereign purposes. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there are no accidents in your life. They are all things that God has either ordained or allowed for purposes that He has for you and to use you in other people's lives. And so. David's men, here's Saul inside the cave, and David and his men are back part of the cave there, and they're whispering away. And and here's Saul, and and his men are telling David, now's your chance. Get that guy. Kill him. Get rid of him, and then you will will no longer be pursued, and neither will we. David said, no, I'm not going to do that, because he is the Lord's anointed. God has chosen him king, right, right do I have, to kill God's anointed leader. And so David simply goes out and and. Saul had taken off his royal robe and thrown it aside to facilitate his business there. And, and, and so David came up, snuck up, and with his knife just sheared off a little piece of the royal robe and then snuck back into the back part of the cave. And Saul, of course, unaware of any of the things that were happening, was saved. David refused to violate his principle. See, uh, often we have principles, but sometimes we set aside our principle for the urgency of the moment, for, for what seems like something we ought to do even though it violates our principle. Because we see this all the time in politics, don't we? People who proclaim to have certain principles and then, of course, constantly seem to violate those, those principles. But David was not going to violate his principle. So when, when Saul left the cave, he was totally oblivious to his vulnerability. He had no idea that he was you know, If David hadn't been there, he'd have been a dead man probably, uh, because David's men would have said, well, let's get him, and then we'll tell David what we've done, and he'll be so happy with us. Well, fortunately, David was there. And when Saul left and went down from the mouth of the cave, David came to the mouth of the cave, and he hailed the king. When Saul turned around, <laughs> you know, it must have really freaked him out you know, to hear a voice coming from where he just was and to know he, to recognize the voice and to turn around and there's David. And David, of course, immediately, the scripture says, prostrated himself on the ground in, in, uh, in homage to, to Saul. And he said, you are my king, you are my father. He was his father in the sense that he was married to Saul's daughter. So Saul was his father-in-law. And he said, you were at my mercy I could have done you in, but I refrain from doing so because I honor the God who has anointed you. And just to show how vulnerable you were, he, he, he said, I'm going to hold up for you a piece of your royal robe. That's how close I was to you. As I mentioned last time, Saul undoubtedly checked his robe to see <laughs> is that really where it came from? And Saul acknowledged that it did. David, in verse 15 of 1 Samuel chapter 24, uh, David summarized for us there his final appeal to Saul. He said, the Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. I have acted righteously. I have done nothing to cause you to pursue me and yet you pursue me. So the Lord judge between us. And so that brings us to the passage of this day that we want us to begin our study with verse beginning at verse 16. Now it came about when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hands, yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, Will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul, And Saul went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul was incredulous. (laughs) Could this be really happening to me? And his incredulity turned to shame when his unjust and irrational behavior became public. Everyone in his whole army that was nearby were there to witness this exchange between Saul and David and to hear Saul acknowledge that he had been wrong. He acknowledged David, Saul did, and refers to him as my son, which he was, his son-in-law. And with tears, we're told, he recognized that while he had been dealing wickedly with David, David had been dealing righteously with him. David had not done anything to earn Saul's wrath or his anger or, or his pursuit. What's interesting is that he further acknowledged that if David had actually considered him to be his enemy, he would have killed him while he had a chance, but he didn't. And so Saul had to acknowledge that David was not treating him as an enemy. He admitted also that David would be the next king of Israel. (laughs) This is one of Saul's more uh, lucid moments when he actually recognized that God's will will prevail. You can't fight against the sovereign God. He does acknowledge our um, choice. God does not ram us to do His will. He invites us to do His will. Uh, God does not force us to violate our free wills and make us His children without our acquiescence in the matter. But God, of course, can shape situations in such where we're kinda hemmed in. And I think that's got to be our prayer for those who are are dear to our hearts who have yet not turned to the Lord, that God will hem them in. Make their choices so few that eventually they'll recognize that the only wise choice is to choose God and to serve Him. He extracted from David a promise that when David became king, he would not wipe out his family, that is Saul's family, and that he would not erase Saul's name from the lineage and and from having been the first king of Israel. And of course, David promised, I will not do that. David had already promised that he would not touch Saul's family. Uh, David had committed himself to Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, to, to, that their families would be blessed one another forever. And of course, David had no plan to wipe out Saul's name. Now, that might seem like a, a strange concept, but it actually was practiced in many societies. There are, for example, in ancient Egypt, when a particular pharaoh came to power, if he didn't like some of the previous pharaohs, he had their names chipped right out of the rocks. You know, where they carved their, their cartouches, the, the kind of their signatures on the rock to acknowledge them as, as king or ruler of Egypt, some would come along later and just chip them right on out of there. So it was very hard to even know sometimes who was king after whom because of what happened. And Saul is concerned about that. Not that they were carving anybody's names in rocks, but he didn't want his name to be uh, obliterated or to be dishonored. David promised he would do neither. So Saul, humiliated by all of this, calls off the manhunt and he goes home. Remember, home for Saul is at Gibeah. Gibeah is right up here north of Jerusalem. So Saul had to take his army and go all the way back up to Gibeah, which isn't terribly far, but, you know, um, for the proud Saul, it was not an easy thing to do to lead his 3,000 men back and say, okay, guys, go home. I I made a mistake. (laughs) David, we're told, went to the stronghold. David didn't go home. He didn't go back to Bethlehem and say, okay, everything's okay between me and Saul. <laughs> David knew Saul was a mercurial man. That he was one day this way and the next day that, and so he was not taking any chances. So David and his men went to the stronghold. The question is, what stronghold? Did he go to the stronghold, a stronghold at Engedi, where he already was? Well, there are some who argue that... Wherever you see stronghold mentioned, without any name designated which stronghold it was, that it implies Masada. Because the word Masada it comes directly from the Hebrew word for stronghold. And, and of course, Masada is, is down towards the southern end of the Dead Sea, right, right about in there on the coast. And it is a very difficult place to assault. If, if you're on the top of Masada and you've got control, you, you can protect yourself uh, almost indefinitely up there. Well, let, let's read on in the 25th chapter. See what happens next. This is, this is one of the most interesting chapters of all of 1 Samuel. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon, whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was, she- uh, while he was shearing sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal. This is, of course, a parenthetic statement. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. Thus you shall say to him, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. Of course, we we have to remember that this is all what you would call proper acknowledgement of one another. David is not the son of Nabal in terms of flesh and blood son. He's just speaking in an honorific way and David's men are not Nabal's servants either in the sense of a butler or somebody like that but the idea is in that society it was very common that you would greet somebody and say I am at your service kind of idea Uh, a way of greeting and a way of acknowledging someone else's superiority or or at least acknowledging them as as an important individual now what is the time differential between chapter 24 and chapter 25 Chapter 24, David and, and Saul have at least temporarily buried the hatchet, you might say. Saul went home. David is hiding out still. And then we're told that Samuel dies at the beginning of the next chapter. So are we talking about weeks, are we talking about months, are we talking about even years? Well, We, we don't know. There's no way of really telling. I don't believe it was an immensely long period of time, but it was probably at least several months, if not a year or two, after the events we read in Chapter 24. Samuel, of course, was the prophet. Samuel was the man that God had anointed to lead Israel into this time, and he had in turn anointed Saul to be king over Israel, and then later had anointed David to be Saul's successor. But Samuel had not been on the front pages of the newspaper for several years by the time we read of his death. In fact, the last time he was mentioned was at the end of chapter 19, and we're now in chapter 25. And, of course, several years have passed. We don't know how many again. But many believe that we're talking about the minimum of five years, maybe as many as ten years have passed since chapter 19 and uh, chapter 25. Yet, although he has no longer been in the forefront of the news, when word comes that Samuel has died, all Israel mourned, and there was a great gathering of people in honor of this man. because. There was no one left in Israel who was so obviously and so powerfully God's spokesman. You and I do not live in an age when there is an official spokesman of God running around, unless, of course, you belong to one of the liturgical churches and you believe that the top guy is God's spokesman. Well, you might think there is, but... Generally speaking, there is not a single individual who says, thus saith the Lord, this is what I'll have you do. But we have a spokesman who speaks to us in our hearts. He is the Holy Spirit. And and he speaks to us from the Word of God. And he speaks to us, we trust, from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. We have uh, not a single individual, but we have God's Spirit himself who is at work to proclaim the word of God and to direct his church. There were prophets still at this time. There were prophets other than Samuel that were around. Remember, Samuel operated a school of prophets, kind of a seminary, you might say. And and one of the prophets that we already have run into was Nathan. And and Nathan is a powerful prophet. Nathan will become almost like David's personal prophet. But Samuel was the last prophet in Israel to have Moses-like authority Just think back in the days of Moses. When Moses spoke, all Israel listened. When Moses gave the word of the Lord, all Israel functioned according to that word. We don't have that in the church today, do we? (laughs) The preacher speaks, and half the congregation doesn't hear him, and the other half doesn't care. Well, no. (laughs) Another portion doesn't care. Another portion is purposely disobedient, and another portion is, is... cooperative and obedient and wanting to hear. I, I don't know what the proportions are. <laughs> anyway, uh, you and I only know about ourselves relative uh, to that. And of course, even when Moses spoke, not everybody listened. <laughs> not everybody was obedient either, but a whole lot more uh, percentage-wise were. I think this was a massive funeral. I think there was a lot of genuine lamentation. Even though the bulk of the people were not exactly walking with God as they should, they knew that someone had passed who was very important to them. He was buried in Ramah with honor. And as I've mentioned to you before, there is a mosque sitting on that hill today. And it's called the Mosque of Nabi Samuel uh, of the prophet Samuel. Probably is the site of his um, burial. The Muslims consider the great men of the Old Testament to be great men in their history too for the most part. Unfortunately, they don't worship the God, of course, of the Bible. Did David attend the funeral? This was a powerful man in David's life. Did the peace between David and Saul, which was proclaimed at the end of uh, chapter 24, prevail for very long? If David did attend, did he attend incognito? They didn't have any FX men in those days to, to make masks so that he could look like somebody else, but he could kind of shroud himself up and, and kind of sneak around. Well, he wouldn't want to sneak around. They'd be obvious, but I mean, you know, hide himself. It is possible. We, we don't know. What we do know is that after Samuel died, the scripture says that he moved to the wilderness of Paran. Now, let me say something about this because this seems highly unlikely. The New American Standard, which I am teaching from, in the King James Version of the Bible, say, Wilderness of Paran. This comes from the Masoretic text. Masorah is a Hebrew word which means tradition. And this is a text of the Old Testament that was put together by rabbis who wanted to maintain traditional interpretations of Scripture what rabbis had thought was the meanings of these things from long time back and and this text was uh, compiled a little over a thousand years ago and and is the one of the texts used in translating the old testament but the wilderness of peran is located a hundred miles south of the dead sea and as you as we're going to read in chapter 25 here and in fact as we already have read in chapter 25 It says that in verse 1. Verse 2 says there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Well, those two places are in the wilderness or on the edge of the wilderness of Maon. Now, if you have the New American Standard Bible, uh, the New International Version, the NIV, it says wilderness of Maon. Where does that come from? It comes from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was made 2100 or more years ago and it seems that that is and the masorites simply decided to change it for whatever traditional reasons caused them to do that but it doesn't make sense because the the next event beginning verse two occurs in in Mayon. so why would david go all the way to the millis of Puran and then come all the way back it's possible but probably not what happened but what is important about this 25th chapter here of the book of first samuel is that we discover a story, an amazing story, of David's interaction with one of the biggest fools of all history and one of the wisest women of all history. And they were married to each other. Nabal and his wife, Abigail, lived in Mayon, but their ranching business was headquartered a mile north at Carmel. Now, again, uh, we're talking about an area southeast of Hebron right about over in here. There's a road I mentioned to you before. There's a main road that goes this way, a branch road that comes down here. And right about in there and over to here is the wilderness of Mayon, And Mayon and Carmel are right about in there. This is a high region. Uh, You're talking about elevations uh, close to 3,000 feet above sea level. And he he was ranching there. Uh, Sheep and goats which which of course live very well in that part of the world. was described as a great man because he possessed a lot of wealth. That's the meaning of the word great in this sense. Not great in that he was a real super guy and, and smart and all the rest of it, but great in that he was a man of, of, of significant wealth. 3,000 feet uh, sheep and 1,000 goats. But his name in Hebrew means fool, Nabal. It seems highly unlikely that when he was born, his parents looked at him and said, what a fool. Let's call him Nabal. I don't think so. We don't know what his real name was, I believe. I believe that this is the name he had earned. (laughs) Because the scripture that we read in verse 3, it says, he was a man, the latter part of verse 3, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a shame to the name Calebite. Remember, Caleb was a great man of God, a man who walked in the strength and power of God and founded a clan that was a worthy clan, but this is an unworthy descendant of Caleb. He was kind of disgusting in many of his ways, but, but there's such a sharp contrast between Caleb and his wife, Abigail. Her name meant source of joy, source of joy. She's described as intelligent, and beautiful in appearance. As we proceed in the the story, we will find that she was a woman of grace and of great wisdom. (laughs) You took the question right out of my mouth. Why would such a fine woman marry such a cad? Well, we have to remember, we're not talking about some enchanted evening across the crowded room, you know, you fall in love with this glorious person. Well, first of all, we have to realize that pre-arranged marriages were the, were the norm. It was very common for a family to arrange their son to marry this other family's daughter when the children were very small and it, uh, sometimes even when they're infants. Before their character was even manifest in many instances. So that could be possible here. But as Ali is implying, it's also possible, it was also very common to pledge a young girl to an older man who was widowed. Now, since Nabal was a man of wealth, probably inherited wealth, knowing his character, it would have been financially advantageous to Abigail's family to marry her to this well-to-do man. You all know the story of Laser Wolf, right? In Fiddler on the Woof, where Tevye and his wife, Golda, uh, decide to marry their eldest daughter to to Laser Wolf, although she's 20 and he's 65, or whatever it is, uh, because he's a man of wealth. He's the butcher. And and he has more wealth than anybody else in in the Jewish community. So it's an honor to marry their daughter, regardless of whether she wanted to do that, which she didn't, because she was in love with a tailor, remember, who was her age, more or less. But a tailor? A guy with no money? Marry a daughter to some guy with no money? Well, that could easily be the scenario here which doesn't speak well for her family, I don't suppose, at least as far as her character is concerned. But you have to understand in those days, uh, I shouldn't say in those days, it can be in any day where a, a family isn't always primarily concerned with an individual, but with the overall well-being of the whole family. And some have to sacrifice in order, and besides, you can learn to love the old guy. <laughs> you remember in Fiddler on the Roof, he said to his wife, Tevia said to his wife, Golda, do you love me? (laughs) It was kind of like a a new idea, love. (laughs) Been married for 25 years. What does love have to do with it? (laughs) Whatever was the case, marriage to a notorious fool, which might have driven many a woman to drink, instead honed Abigail into a very patient, gracious, and wise woman. And as I thought about that, this, this passage uh, came to mind and, and maybe did to yours, too, in 1 Peter chapter 1, reading at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." People react to different difficult uh, situations in in a wide variety of responses. But the wise person submits to what God brings into his or her life and seeks to discover what God wants to use this for, to develop the character of this individual. It wasn't pleasant for Abigail to be married to a fool, especially a notorious fool. But did she up and, 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 and say, well, out with you, I'm going to go somewhere else? No. She stayed there. She stayed with it. She was a woman of God who loved God above everything else. We're going to see how this will bear great fruit in her character and in the whole situation and will change her situation drastically. You know, God doesn't always leave us in, in a stinking mess uh, forever, you know. He will take us out, as, as I read in the Psalm. He lifts my feet out of the miry clay. Abigail's situation will change so radically she couldn't even have dreamed of it. In the wilderness of Maom, David is hiding. And he heard that his fellow Judean, Nabal, was shearing sheep. David was responsible for providing for 600 men plus their families in the wilderness, which was not an easy thing to do. And so he looked for any source of provision that he could possibly find. Since his men had protected Nabal's shepherds. Now this is the scenario. Nabal's shepherds were out feeding the sheep and the goats out in the countryside. This is a wild part of the world. You stand in the Judean wilderness today and you look out across the ridgetops and there is nothing out there but rocks and grass. And in those days, the wild animals were a whole lot more prolific than they are today. That's why David, as you know, slew a lion with his bare hands and had slain a bear too who were attacking his sheep. But not only wild animals, but wild people were coming. The area was not civil, even as it isn't today in many ways. And so David's men had protected Nabal's shepherds and their flocks because they were there and so they might as well do something and so they protected, oh maybe others too, but at least they protected them from rustlers, from brigands, from vagabonds, from, from marauding bands of nomads. And so David felt that Nabal should show his gratitude by sharing with him and his men during the traditional sheep-shearing festiv- festivities. That was a, a hilarious time of the year, sheep-shearing time. Hey, we're getting the, the fruit of all our labor here. We, we slay the fatted sheep, and we have a big par- party. We picnic, we barbecue. We have a good time. We, we give away gifts. So David asks Nabal, Nabal, if he won't share with my men. Well, we won't have time to develop, but let's, let's read the next few verses, and then we'll come back to them next week, beginning at verse 9. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I don't even know? So David's young men retraced their way back, went back and they came and told David according to all these words. And David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword, each man girded on his sword and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. Doesn't look so good, does it? David didn't take the rebuff very kindly. Grab your six guns, boys. We're riding out of here. (laughs) Nabal was in trouble. And Nabal didn't even know it. The guy was so foolish, he didn't even... And David's got 600 men out there. What is he thinking? David wasn't exactly just begging. David was saying, share it. He didn't say or else, but it was kind of implied, you know. And Nabal takes the wrong tact here. But lo and behold, he's married to a wise woman. And as we'll see next time, Abigail becomes the cavalry all by herself uh, in saving his bacon or his mutton. (laughs) This is a fascinating chapter as we'll proceed here.